everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's Appraisal Buzzcast. With me, as always, is our host, Hal Humphreys. Let me bring him in. Hey, Hal, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jim. How are you? I'm doing great. We have a great episode today. We'll be talking about private work. And with us is Tim Evans, who is a certified general appraiser and SRA out of Michigan. Tim, welcome. Hi. Tim, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to do this with us. I appreciate you taking the time and I appreciate your expertise here. Um, let's before we get into it, let's let's just kind of start with tell us, you know, for the folks in the room that don't know who you are, tell us tell us a little bit about your history. How did you get into this business? How long you've been doing it? That kind of thing. Um, I got into business. I started in Iowa. I worked for an MAI and then my wife took her dream job in uh, Michigan. And so we moved to Michigan in 08, which was really, really bad timing. Um, <laughs> I had clients I did. I, I'd never, I, I mean, we did mostly commercial work, um, a, a lot of government work, um, and I could still do that work, but then the economy just, yeah, it was, it was bad. We bought our house in February of 08. I mean, oh my goodness, that, that's the worst timing ever. Um, and so then I had to, I lost the government work and I lost, you know, everything slowed down. I started doing uh, more residential work. The only residential work I'd ever done before was litigation, private work. Okay. I'd never done lending work before. Okay. And so then the AMC thing came and I, I figured out in about mm, a week, two weeks, maybe that I didn't like the AMC thing at all. And so from then on, I just started trying to um, change things. It took a long time. I mean, the recession was, you know, bad, but whatever, but, um, the private work started coming. It took about five years to really start getting it. And I've been a hundred percent, well, not a hundred percent, 90% private for three or four years. Oh, wow. That is, that is fantastic. Let me ask you this, Tim. Um, you know, you, you apprenticed under an MAI. I did as well here in Nashville. Um, you have an SRA designation. Do you think that makes a difference in being able to get private work? I know that, AI people refer to AI people. I mean, yeah. I've had times where I, I called a guy in uh, Eastern Ohio a month or so ago, maybe six weeks ago, because he was a, 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 an AI person. And I referred to him some work from farm work over there. And I've had AI people refer to me. So I think it does help. Um, yeah. I think yeah. attorneys like it too. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, um, you know, in, in my experience, so I do not have a designation from AI. Um, and in my experience, that's one of the first things my attorney clients will ask me, um, you know, are you designated through the Institute? And I'm not, but I've got, I've got a particular area of expertise um, that, that allows me to get a foot in the door. And here's the thing I've found that once you, once you do three, five, 10 private, projects for attorneys and do a really good job, then that referral network starts up. Yes. That's how, it, that's how the ball rolls. You yeah. do a couple yeah. of good ones and then next thing you know, somebody's re, you know, talking to another attorney or not a town attorney calls and talks to one of the local people and they say, who do you use? I mean, that's how it falls. I've got 20, I bet that use me exclusively. Yeah. And that's it's all about word of men. Well, let's do this. I'm going to take a real quick break and we're going to hear from one of our sponsors and we'll be right back. Did you know that NAN hosts quarterly discussions with our appraisal panel on bias, inclusion, equity, and diversity initiatives that impact the appraisal industry? 
The topic of bias in the appraisal world will remain at the forefront of legislative, agency, and lender priorities well into the future. At NAN, we believe that intentional bias is only a very small fraction of the underlying issue, and that outdated policies and regulations and unconscious bias are of far greater concern. It's our hope to work closely with the appraiser community as partners in an endeavor to improve processes and procedures and ensure equitable treatment for all valuations. Learn more by visiting nan-amc.com. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Hal Humphreys. You're listening to The Appraisal Buzz. I've got Tim Evans out of Michigan with me. Tim is an SRA and a, an appraiser up there, certified general. Um, Tim, we're talking today specifically. I asked you to be here today to specifically talk about private work. What does that mean? It means no lender work. <laughs> no lender work. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, the states are, are, are big. I mean, the oldest um, baby boomer right now is 77. So we've got 20 years of estate work. Um, I do a lot of farm work and a lot of um, farmers are baby boomers. Um, yeah. And then of course, COVID just made the divorce world blow up. I mean, this is insanity. We're all about 140 divorces since the start of COVID, which would normally do 80 a year, not 45 a year. Yeah. Um, and the, the thing that I find interesting about private work is mommies and daddies are going to get mad at each other. Statistically speaking, it happens roughly half the time people get married. Um, and when that happens, there's an opportunity for an appraiser to come in and say, hey, this asset is worth this many dollars. It's the thing that I find interesting about private work is if you go on social media, which is where you and I met, um, there's a lot of, I don't want to say fear, but a lot of um, reticence to get into private work. There are people that say, oh, you know, everybody talks about private work. You know, I, I can't get that work. If somebody were looking at private work, and, and I'm thinking in terms of divorce work is a great example. Estate work is another great example and oftentimes not quite so depressing um look tim you know there's a building on on hillsborough road here in nashville the adjacent building they tore it down and in the process of tearing it down to redevelop the site they knocked the, the foundation out of the subject building and attorneys got involved and they needed someone to come in and say it was worth this much money at 10 o'clock in the morning and at 1145 after the backhoe knocked the foundation out and the wall fell down it's worth this much i mean there, there's a world of private work out there available for people that are willing to do it does that sound right to you yeah i think part of it too is i mean i don't i don't do industrial work i just don't feel qualified for it um so that's something i'll turn down but in, in litigation work if you take the hard stuff and the goofy stuff, that attorney will remember you forever and they'll refer work to you. I had one um, a year and a half ago. Um, it was a landlocked parcel that wasn't deeded correctly when somebody died and the judge wanted an appraisal from 1974. And I I did it. I mean, it took a long time, but um, you know, um, and that, that attorney, um, her whole office uses me exclusively. They won't use anybody yeah. else. Yeah. 
so I, I think the, the fear or trepidation or reticence to, to take on private work a lot of times revolves around this idea that there are attorneys involved and I might end up in court. Um, what would you say to someone that, that offered that objection? Like, I don't want to testify in court. You know, I've been in Michigan and, and Michigan is a mediation state. Nobody goes to court. I mean, divorces um, or litigation of other sorts, they never go to court. In 16 years, I've been twice. But reading on the internet as we do, you see these people talk about what do you charge for your uh, per hour for divorce and this and that. And I was under the impression that people went to court a lot more in other states. And I'm not sure that's the case. I did a small poll just out of curiosity. And most people, a vast majority, don't go to court. Yeah. Now, you might end up in court every once in a while. But, um, but you have to be willing to go because I know attorneys who won't hire somebody who's not willing to go. But I've been told hundreds of times, oh, we're going to court. No, we're not. It's not happening. Tennessee is, is what they call a no-fault divorce state, meaning you know you can get divorced for pretty much any reason you want. Um, and it's rare for families to go to court uh, for a number of reasons, not the least of which is once you take it in front of a judge and it becomes public record, your dirty laundry is aired out there for everybody to see in some form or fashion. So a lot of people go to mediation. Um, there's a huge mediation um, process here in Tennessee. There's a lot of that work going on. Um, you know, in my experience, nine times out of 10, when I'm doing non-lending work for an attorney, say there's a property boundary dispute or damage, you know, before and after damage value, a lot of times I don't even get to the point of writing an appraisal. It's a matter of let's do some research and talk about it. And let's do some more research and talk about it. We, we really do need an appraisal at this point. We need to dig in and, and draw your conclusions. But more often than not, what I find myself doing is consulting. Do you ever find yourself in that situation of just doing some consulting work with attorneys? Not often. No. Okay. Every, once a year, maybe. Okay. No. Okay. So... Let's shift gears and talk about, you know, if you're doing a residential report for a potential divorce proceeding, it might go to court. I think one of the biggest pushbacks I get from appraisers out there in the world is, you know, they're used to doing lender work. They're used to doing um, AMC work. And they're not used to going into very much detail on things. Now, you and I, in exchange leading up to this, you had sent me some samples and I said, you know, I, I think this may be one of the problems that some people have is they're just not used to putting that much narrative into the reports. Um, and then you came back with, this is not that detailed. This is just what you do. How do we get appraisers to think in terms of we're an, we're an analyst and our job is to analyze information and articulate that in a reasonable fashion um, and get over the hurdle of, oh, that's too much work. I, I, I look at people and they say, well, I get, I get an assignment you know, for a divorce. And they don't impress the attorney enough to where that attorney says, hey, I, I want to use this guy all the time. And I think that's part of the problem. I, I, People are writing these these private reports just like they do for an AMC or for lending. And 
it doesn't hold up to scrutiny sometimes, especially if there's two if there's two appraisers involved and one's got a whole bunch of detail and one doesn't. From what I've seen from my work on, and, and appraisers on the other side, appraisers need to take what they use right now and throw it away because there's so many canned comments um, that might or might not apply. But there's stuff about 10%, 15% adjustment guidelines. Well, those guidelines were retired for lending in 2015, and they were never a guideline in litigation. Right. Um, the, the the can comments, the adjustments that can't be supported, because, I mean, we don't go to court, but an attorney might call me up and say, hey, what's wrong with this report? Well, they've got all these adjustments that have no rhyme, no reason, no support, nothing. And that comes up in mediation. Um, and, you know, they'll discuss this or whatever. And I've, I've had them actually hire me to do formal written reviews where, you know, the attorney hands the mediator the review appraisal and say, hey, look, the other person, the other appraisal isn't isn't worth it. It's, it, it's not it's not credible. So I, I think that when I when I found out what AMCs were all about and I didn't want to do it, I wrote reports just like that sample I sent to you. It's a little different because it's for lending, but I write my lending reports similar to what you've seen. Yeah, because I wanted out of this AMC thing. And yeah, so that, I, I went to mostly direct lender work for a long time, while accumulating the clients for the for the private work. But I, I, I that detail, I don't think it's detailed. I think that's what we should be doing, which some people will totally disagree with me. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. And I think at, at the end of the day, I think it's useful to think of it in terms of intended use and intended user. If it's lending work and the intended user is an underwriter, they already have some idea of what's going on. They already have some idea of the real estate market. They already have some idea of appraisal theory. Possibly you might not need to explain every nuance of appraisal theory to that person. But if you're doing it for an attorney, I mean, in my experience, attorneys are really good usually at the law. Most of them are not really good about valuation theory because that's not their wheelhouse. So the intended user needs to understand how you came up with these adjustments, how you derived you know, the things you're going to do and have support for it. That said, if you do all that stuff anyway, which we all should, why not put that in the lender reports as well? I, I agree. Put it in. I mean, people talk about work file, and if I can fit it in the report, that's the less I need to put in the work file. I mean, it's, if you're going to do the work anyway, well, put it in the report. Yeah, yeah. I wrote the reports similar to what you saw. My first attorney client in Michigan came from an AMC assignment, where the AMC got that really long, detailed report, and the guy goes. You know, I, I think it was his mother or his grandma. I don't know how, whatever it was. He saw the report and he's like, this is really detailed. I've never seen this before. And he's a client to this day. And that was my yeah. first one in Michigan in 2009-ish. All right, let's do this. I'm going to take a real quick break. We're going to hear from one of our sponsors and then we'll come right back. Need a profitable PDC solution for your clients? Jaro's appraisal management software makes the process faster and easier. With Jaro, you can order standard appraisals, inspections, and hybrids, all on one seamless platform. The software also gives you everything you need to manage new vendors, 
by taking care of background checks and letting you shop from a pre-vetted panel of inspectors with a wide range of credentials. Get started with Jaro today at tryjaro, that's tryjaro.com. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to The Appraisal Buzz. I'm Hal Humphreys. I'm joined today by Tim Evans, uh, SRA appraiser out of Michigan. And we're talking about private lending or private work, not lending work, private work for real estate appraisers. Um, Tim, you know, we, we've talked about this kind of, we've, we've kind of run all the way around Robin Hood's bar. But I, I think at the end of the day, if you're doing work for an AMC or if you're doing work for even for a lender, the fees that you can charge because there are so many people doing that type of work tend to be a little bit less. My experience, and I'm curious about you, is for non-lender work, when you're going to take the time to do a more detailed report, I find that I can charge more money for that. Yeah, I'm about 40% higher than what the AMCs are paying here now, maybe 50 okay almost double what the AMCs are paying now. Okay. So at that, I think that that does away with the, the last objection that I hear from appraisers out there in the world that are used to doing AMC work and lender work. When they say, I just can't afford to take that much time to write that much information from scratch. I'd rather use my canned statements or rather use my quick lists. Um, you're being compensated very well for this work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And many times and it's multiple assignments at a time. I've got one, I've got 12. I've got another one, I've got one, two, three, four properties. Um, and I've got another one too. I mean, so sometimes you'll get, and it doesn't happen all the time, but there's a lot of times you get a bulk, you know, where you've got two, three, four, five properties. 12 is unusual, but I've got one with 12 right now. Yeah, yeah. And Tim, let me ask you this. You get paid a fee for the appraisal upfront? Not always, no. Well, I'm saying you get paid a fee for the appraisal period into sentence. You're, you're going to do the appraisal. You're going to do the analysis. They pay you for that work. Yes. Yeah. If they go to court, do they owe you more money? Yes. On the, if, if someone says, all right, we're not, we're not sure we're going to go to court. We're going to depose Tim Evans. We're going to give him a deposition and try and discredit him in a deposition. Four hour long deposition. Are you compensated for that time? Yes. Well, very well, very well. So, and, and I, I describe it like this, when you're being deposed or when you're being cross-examined in a courtroom setting, sometimes it feels like you're standing naked in the intersection, the main intersection in your hometown. It's just like you're, you're just kind of there and being exposed and, and someone's trying to tear you apart or laughing at you or whatever. But in a deposition, the attorney's job that is deposing you a lot of times is to try and discredit you. It's not personal. You're being paid well for it. And the last thing is if you've done your homework and you've done the analysis and you're solid on the numbers, do you have anything to worry about? You shouldn't, you shouldn't have anything to worry about. I mean, most time it's for me, it's in the report. I mean, you know, if, if it's an acreage property, we put full page land sales in it. You know, I mean, if we've got a, a outbuilding, we, we do the depreciated cost and contributory value of the property or whatever, what, uh, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm not in a big city. I, I, I work in a smaller market and a rural market. It's more, everybody knows each other too. Um, I mean, the last time I got 
I've deposed, um, I was working for an out of town attorney and he didn't know this market very well. And, uh, he was over preparing me. I'm like, you know, we're not, we're not in, in Detroit here. Yeah. Yeah. I got this. We're going to be fine. So the last thing I want to kind of touch on, um, and, and then I want to have a free for all after we do this, like, we've got a list of questions I wanted to get through. Non-lending work is not for everybody. Some people are not comfortable doing it. Some people don't want to do it. But from your perspective, Tim, who would you say you're, you're leaving money on the table? You're leaving your expertise on the table. You need to be going after non-lender work. What, what is the avatar? What is the appraiser you would say that to? I would say that. I'd say it to almost everybody. I mean, some people just don't like it and don't want to do it. And that's fine, you know, you know, but I, I would say it to people who are open to change and open to, Hey, I got to quit doing things the way I was doing for this. Cause it's not going to work there because I, I see so many uh, appraisals from the other side. And it's like, this isn't, you, you can't do it this way. You know, I would, I would throw away all the, all the canned comments and all the goofy adjustment lists and uh, the quick list thing. I don't have, I have all the mode. I've never used a quick list before ever, but I guess some people, you know, live and die by them. I would throw all that stuff away and, and be open to learning things and, and open to saying, Hey, this report, I can't write three or four hour report. I might take eight hours to write this, but it, it, for me, it's very steady work. I mean, so I, I encourage anybody to do it. They have to have an open mind and, and be able to say, okay, I'm going to get rid of some of these old things I used to do um, and maybe look at what other people are doing in, in this side of it, because there's some of that stuff just does not work. You know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are both talking about, um, you know, the new UAD coming out. Um, and, and this is specifically to lender work, but they're also talking about, look, we don't need subjective comments. We don't need subjective things. We need analysis. And I think at the end of the day, those of us appraisers and, and, and a lot of the people that listen to this podcast fall into this category. The ones that are analysts are going to be fine. In the grand scheme of things, the appraisers that are willing to sit down and do the analysis are going to be relevant going forward, regardless of what happens in the lending landscape. And, and look, Lender work is not a bad thing. Um, no, not at all. People have to have a, an appraisal to get their mortgage, all that stuff. But I think going forward, we're all going to have to be more thoughtful about our analysis. And here's where I, I know I've run all the way around Robin Hood's barn to get to this point. But non-lender work forces you, forces one to sit down and think about the analysis and articulate that analysis in a way that another person can understand it who may not be in this space. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, we, we have to explain a lot more in it, but but that's not a bad habit to have. That's a good habit to have. I mean, I have a couple of clients that I work for that that are they only deal with rich people and I'm, I get all their work in this county. Um, but they demand a lot more analysis, and a lot more um, what have you. I just did two land appraisals for a company. Um, I mean, it's vacant land and it's lending work, but I didn't put it on a form. I did narrative reports for them um, and they'll accept it. You know, people say, well, what's the Fannie Mae form for land? Fannie Mae doesn't lend on land. So there is one. There's not one. So, but I mean, I have 
three lending clients that will accept narrative reports for residential land. Yeah. Um, I've, I've written residential residential narrative reports for litigation before too. I think if I if I wanted to t- give somebody a really good piece of advice of how to how to really delve and really learn how good you are at analyzing, write a residential report in a narrative format. I think that would be a huge tool for people. It's, it's a big a big teaching opportunity. It's a it's a great learning opportunity, no doubt. And and here's the thing: I, I've made this statement over the years. The 1004 form encourages, by the way it's laid out and by the way it addresses things, it encourages people not to go into detail. Is the highest best use current use? Yes, no. If no, please explain. That's all it says. I mean, yeah, I mean, how long how, how long is your highest and best use analysis, Tim? A minimum three paragraphs. Minimum. <laughs> I love it. And how many times do you use a 1004 form for divorce work? Uh, zero. Zero. I, I use the Appraisal Institute um, form. I think the, the and I'm not advertising for AI here. That form forces you to make more comments because they have yeah. sections where describe the above grade to describe the below grade. And so it's it's it, it almost forces your appraiser to be more thorough and, and more narrative in nature. Yeah, I like it. And one of the problems with lending work and doing the 1004 form, and we're all aware that that's going to change sometime in the next couple of years, there will be no more forms. One of the things about the 1004 form is for lenders, it has been really difficult to learn where Tim puts his addendum and where Hal puts his addendum and where Jim Morrison puts his addendum and everybody puts different things in different places. Um, If you're writing a narrative report, I mean, I don't know about you, Tim, but my process is always, I, I use USPAP as a checklist for my narrative report. It's kind of the outline for my narrative. And I start writing with USPAP, you know, standards one, two laid out. So I make sure I cover all the things I'm supposed to cover, but it allows you as an analyst to really dive in and think about some things and explain some things. I love a narrative report. Narrative reporting, it's it's helpful a lot of times when, when it doesn't fit into a, a form where you're trying to make these adjustments you can't support. I mean, a lot of appraisers um, miss out on, on the qualitative analysis versus the quantitative. You know, this is superior. You know, the best appraisal I've read in my life was probably about a decade ago. And it was a car dealership in the Detroit metro area. And they did the entire report qualitatively. We're talking about like a five or six or seven million dollar property, and there's nothing quantitative in it at all. It was really laid out well and really discussed well, and there's no two thousand dollar bathroom adjustments on that. It's it's all the discussion. It's it's it was yeah. a very impressive report. Well, and I think it's a good exercise for us as appraisers to to think about the narrative report and how it how it works and how to articulate yourself. And then, if you are working with the form, just know that if you're doing non-lender work, you're going to have an addendum and it's probably going to be pretty significant. Tim, what is the average page count of your addendum for non-lender work? 30, 25, 30, maybe 35. Yeah. Yeah. Now you did mention one thing on land appraisals. When you're doing it for, for, for court work, you'll have a full page write up on your land sales. Mm -hmm. Do you verify those land sales? Absolutely. What is the process for verification? Like if, if, if we find them in an MLS, which if you're doing farm work, 
a lot of farms don't sell through MLS. Farmers don't like giving away 6% of their money because they can sell it at the diner next week if they just say, hey, I'm selling my farm. Yeah. Um, but if we find an MLS, we all you know, pull um, public records. But we also want to talk to a realtor involved too, just like for any for a house, you know, when I have comps for our houses, I want the realtor called and say, hey, you know, what What didn't I see in those pictures? You know, why is this your property selling for 30,000 less than what other ones did? Well, the photographer is really good at hiding that carpet that was just, you know, full of uh, mud or whatever it is, you know. So we verification in, in non-lending work is very important. Right? We had a case. It's about two years ago. And I live in a smaller market and it was a kind of a luxury house. And so me and the other appraiser used three of the same comps. Well, comp number, whatever it was, which is his best comp, um, it's sold for really low. And I was almost like, he's trying to get this low. And sometimes there's appraisers in litigation will try to go low or they'll try to go higher, whatever. But what he didn't do was verify with anybody involved in the transaction. What turns out, the house needed a new roof yesterday. Now we're talking about a big, big house and the roof was going to be close to 30 grand. Oh, wow. And the leaky roof had caused some stain on the second floor and some drywall. So throw another five grand in there to fix what water damage already occurred. And so him and I were about $30,000 apart on these, on our opinion of value. And there it was, cause he didn't verify any of his sales. So you have to, I mean, I, we write in there according to the listing realtor or according to the selling realtor or according to whoever, this is what this is and this happened and whatever. And it's, so we can quote, quote them in there. And that's, I think that's important too, to quote your sources. Absolutely. Absolutely. And here's the thing. USPAP, I think I'm not a, I'm not a USPAP instructor, so I can't be quoted on this. Please don't quote me on this, but I think USPAP uses the word must a grand total of three or four times. And it is in this context. An appraiser must collect, verify, and analyze all information necessary for credible assignment results. And USPAP one four. Yeah. USPAP one four. Yeah, and 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 must verify. And if we if we if we verified every sale, even in lending work with a human being to ask those questions. I'm thinking of one where I was $20,000 off from the other appraiser because the other appraiser did not verify sale and the property sold. There was a septic system that had been installed 30 years ago. It consisted of a drain pipe that went to three barrels. The first barrel held the solids, the second barrel held the effluent, and the third barrel had a bunch of holes punched in it, and it was the leach product. We had one that went into a creek last year. So in order, in, order to, in order to fix that problem, they had to pull that out, get it cleaned up, and then install a proper septic system. And that's the reason that property sold for so many fewer dollars, because there were those issues. That wasn't mentioned in the MLS listing. Realtors are in the, in the business to sell houses, not to chase potential buyers away. Yeah. Um, I've heard the argument from many people, realtors don't call us back. I've appraised commercial properties in eight states. I've appraised residential in three. I, I, I've never had a problem with at least 80% return rate on realtors. I've never had that problem in, in eight, to let, you know, all these states. It just doesn't, they do call back. Not all the time, maybe not the same day, but they typically call back at about an 80% rate. 
not only do they call back, they're usually the comment I get most of the time is I've never had an appraiser call me. I'm, you know, thank you. And I'm happy to talk about this thing. I'm like, what? Um, Tim, I, I can't, again, I can't thank you enough for, for agreeing to be here with us today. I think this topic is number one on social media. It's a hot topic and people get really excited about it on either side, but I do think it's important to let our listeners know, our appraiser listeners specifically know that there is a world out there of non-lending work that is well-paying. It does require that we do the work. It requires that we verify sales and write them up and articulate them in a way that makes sense. Uh, it requires that we do the analysis. But I mean, Tim, I've been, I've been in this business basically my entire life. My dad was an appraiser. Um, 1986, I was apprenticing with, with an MAI here in Nashville. Um, I grew up doing the analysis stuff. And you said something earlier today, the hard stuff and the goofy stuff. That's the stuff I like to do. That's the stuff that's fun. Um, but Sometimes. that's me. Sometimes. I mean, look, if, you, if you're in a world like 2020 and 21, when, when AMCs and banks are just sending out orders left and right, and there's an appraiser shortage and, and you know, there's a pipeline out there, that's super easy work to get. We all know that doesn't last. How did it work in 2008, Tim? Not well. Not well. It was a struggle for me. I mean, moving to a different state, you know, 700, 600 miles away. So, yeah. So, um, I, I, again, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. I think this was a, a very useful conversation for our appraiser listeners. Um, anything else you'd like to add to the topic before we bring Jim Morrison back in? I just hope that a lot of appraisers survive this downturn. I, I don't want to see what happened in 2009 and 10. I think we lost a lot of talented appraisers because they couldn't, compete with, with the really low fees and, and they moved on. And I, I really did see some really good talented appraisers leave and I don't want to see that again. I, I want them to survive. And that's why I get involved in some of this internet stuff. I, I want, I want, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping the best for appraisers who I'm doing. Yeah, I love it. And, and I'm in the same boat again, lifetime in this career. I've seen it go up. I've seen it go down at least three times and the downtimes can be really hard. But if you've got a broader spectrum of work that you're willing to do and able to do, the downtimes don't hurt quite so bad. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get to enjoy 2020, 2021, the the big boom stuff because I wasn't doing hardly any lending. I mean, I do a little bit, but wasn't doing a lot of lending work. And uh, um, but I'm I'm happy that what with the. I mean, I'm I'm very blessed with the work I do have. Um, but I think um, you know, appraisers need to learn from this and say, Hey, I can't put all my, my, uh, eggs in one basket. Um, That's I it. Saw people say, Hey, I've got three great AMC and clients. Well, you've got, I mean, three great AMC clients is that's going to be tough when it gets different. And well, here we are a couple years later and those AMC clients don't have any loyalty. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Tim, thank you. Jim Morrison. Do we by chance have an anonymous appraiser question that Tim and I could noodle over? We do. Um, so this person asks, I appraised a 70s style home with a finished basement. The basement room had half windows that allowed light in, but didn't allow space for egress. If there was a fire or something in the house, is this something I should comment on or be worried about? I would comment on it, but I mean, I mean, every 1970s home basically has that. I mean, in my market, I mean, you know, they're all like that. I mean, my basement, 
in my house built in 1996 doesn't have egress windows. Yeah, I think you, I think, look, does it have an impact on value? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe every house in the neighborhood has that same situation. But I think it's fair to say if there's a fire in this basement, the only way out is through the door and out the door. You can't climb through these windows. I think that that's a fair thing to say. That's that goes into um, the analysis that you're providing your clients. I I, I would say ninety percent of the homes I've appraised do not have an egress window in a basement. Yeah, but you know, you go down. To, I guess people in Florida. I think it's Florida. They don't have basements. Right. You know, so it's around the country. I mean, maybe egress windows are more common in California. Maybe they changed their code before Michigan changed the code. Who knows? Yeah. Um, I think, I think you kind of have to call those things out, Jim, um, as a matter of course. And I know for a fact that FHA is going to want you to say there is no direct outside egress in this room. And therefore we might not be able to call it a bedroom. Um, so there, there are those issues. Tim Evans, Again, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. I've enjoyed chatting with you. I hope it's been a fun time for you. Yep, and the cat stayed asleep. She did indeed. She did indeed. Jim Morrison, do we have anything else we need to cover today? No, I think this is a great episode, and I think people are really going to enjoy it. Thank you, Tim. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. In that case, I'm Hal Humphreys for Jim Morrison and Tim Evans, and that is your appraisal buzz for this week. <laughs>